This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Tashira Palayama, Marco Mueller, and Chris Wallace, who all just signed up this month to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 495 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ada Palmer. She's a professor of European history at the University of Chicago and is the author of the four-volume Terra Ignota series of science fiction novels. She's also a composer and anime expert, and together with Joe Walton, she hosts the science fiction podcast Ex Urbe Ad Astra. And we'll be speaking with her today about the first book in the Terra Ignota series, Two Like the Lightning. The fourth and final volume, Perhaps the Stars, is out now. And now here's our interview with Ada Palmer. All right, so we're here with Ada Palmer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I've been looking forward. So it says on your website that you wrote 900,000 words of fiction before starting on Two Like the Lightning. So tell us about that. Oh, yes. I mean, I wrote a novel, which was the first of a epic fantasy series. And then while I was shopping it, I wrote a novel, which was the first of a real world earth sort of secret history. And then I, while I was shopping that, I wrote the first volume of a more second world fantasy, uh, just, you know, with each new series that I world built and novel that I wrote in those worlds, I got better at it. And then fourth time's the charm. So those books were like 300,000 words each or? Um, I think there were a couple of them that were more like 180,000 words, but the one of them was 350. Uh, and to like the lightning and seven surrenders, the first two books of Tara Gnetta were actually originally written as one book, which was close to 300,000 words as uh-huh. well. Uh, so those were both done before it was sold. And so how long of a time period was that that you were working on those pre to like the lightning books? It depends on whether you count world building as part of the writing process, because I was world building the first one for a good five years before I was seriously writing it. Uh, I wrote all of those during grad school, finishing them around uh, over the course of seven years for the four. But I had been world building the first one before that and was world building the second one while writing the first one, world building the third one while writing the second one, etc. Yeah. And so you said that you were sending those out to publishers. So what sort of responses were you getting? I mean, at the time, ones that felt very discouraging, but looking back on them were actually very promising because they mostly, I got my fair share of form letters, but I also got a nice trickle of this shows a lot of promise. You know, this is a bit long, or I think you should work on other projects or this isn't for me, but I love the world. Uh, So, you know, those bits of encouragement, which editors rarely send because the slush pile is so big. So those were promising, even though they were also discouraging. Uh, a no is still a no, but they were definitely the kind of no that shows that the editors and agents that I was shopping it with did see that I was getting toward really good writing, uh, just not quite yet. 
So when you look back on those books now, like what do you, because because Two Like the Lightning is just so accomplished, it seems to me. And were you, were those books pretty close or did you make a big leap in quality with Two Like the Lightning? It wasn't a big leap as much as it was steady. Each one was better than the previous ones as I mastered more skills and had more practice. Uh, my favorite writing teacher as an undergrad, Hal Holiday, always said, Writing is a slow apprenticeship. Some things you can be a natural genius at or pick up quickly, but writing isn't one of those things. <laughs> you get better at it slowly by practicing and practicing and practicing. And, you know, thinking and a few types of exercises like practicing writing concisely can help, but mostly it's just the more you do it, the more you do it, which is why so many novelists debut in their 40s and 50s, because you've had time at that point to work and write really well. In the afterwards of the book, I, I found this really touching. You, you say stuff like, um, sometimes I would cry, not because I was sad, but because it hurt. Physical pain from the intensity of wanting something so much. This is wanting to be an author. Um, yeah. t- talk about that. Because, that, I mean, that must, must have been hard then, that getting those rejections when this is something you just want so much. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I would lay awake at night just unable to fall asleep because of the aching of thinking about it and wanting it. Uh, to the degree that for months after I did sell the book, I would wake up in the morning and worry that it was a dream and <laughs> keep things around that were like my editor's business card, which I kept out on my desk as sort of a physical object to prove, no, it wasn't a dream uh, because I had wanted it so much. Yeah, but the the way that I endured that was that I was always working on the next project. And I always felt that while the current project was great, the next project was even better. So that if that one wasn't good enough, the next one might be. And so I was never without hope. It never felt as if I had done my best and my best wasn't good enough. It always felt I had done my best for last year's me, but the best of this year's me is an even better best. And that knowledge helped me endure, uh, even though it was always very hard. Talk about when you got the acceptance you say in the book, I received my hard-fought yes at the 2013 San Antonio Worldcon. Yeah, Uh, I had been chorus, I had been communicating in a roundabout way with Patrick Nielsen Hayden, the editor, my editor, uh, to whom I had sent it. And, you know, through a mutual friend, he'd communicated to me that he intended to give me an answer at the con. And, uh, it was interesting. It had been on his desk for a couple of years at that point. That was a very long, hard wait. Uh, and so I knew going to that convention that I would have my answer at, at that point, but not when or, or what, obviously. And uh, we had a dinner planned. But the morning before that, I was walking through the dealer's room to go help staff one of the booths because I was actually at that convention helping to represent the Rare Books Library of Texas A&M University where I taught at the time, which has one of the major collections of science fiction materials and archive materials. And we were there to show people about the archive and also encourage people to encourage authors to archive our papers with us. Are you an author? Archive your papers with Texas A&M University. All those random scraps of paper with notes on them that you have lying around that are part of your process that you don't want to destroy because they feel important, but you don't want them to clutter up your office. You can put them in a box and send them to the library and they'll archive them and future researchers will study you. It's great. And speaking as a researcher who studies past authors, please do this. Um, 
But setting aside that advertisement for how important archiving is, uh, I was walking through the dealer's room and Joe Walton, who is an author who is a good friend and also uh, uh, Patrick is her editor as well, uh, was there sitting at her table doing a signing. Uh, and, and I was walking past and she gestured me over to come over and I sort of gestured back, no, shaking my head in a, you know, oh, there's a long line for your signing. I don't want to interrupt. I'll talk to you afterward. We're friends. Uh, and then she gestured me over even more <laughs> enthusiastically. <laughs> so I went over and, and she told me that she had run into Patrick and he told her yes. And he told her that she could tell me yes. Um, and then I burst into tears <laughs> and started just sobbing and, and we hugged each other. And I remember sobbing for a little bit and then turning to the person who was in the front of the line waiting for Joe to sign books and, and apologizing incoherently and him saying, it's okay, whatever it is, is clearly important. <laughs> uh, and I don't remember whether it was me or Joe who said, you know, I just sold my first novel and he got this amazing look on his face and paused a moment and said, oh, so it does happen. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> it was... It was really fantastic. And then I, I kept sobbing and uh, I, I you know, went back over to the booth and had to explain incoherently to, to my friend there why I was sobbing and, and tried to text message a friend to say it was happening, but couldn't see the screen well enough to <laughs> tell what I was text messaging. Um, and then later that day, we had the dinner uh, and and I got to talk with Patrick about it at greater like although before that we had a, a hilarious conversation where we were both I'm I think all people are shy in circumstances where we really really care about a thing uh, people talk about introvert or extrovert or outgoing or ingoing as if they're absolutes but I think in a lot of ways they aren't absolutes they're relative to each other and sometimes I'll find myself very relaxed in one context and you know I can walk out onto a stage in front of 5,000 people at an anime convention where I'm hosting an event no problem but the first time I was in a room with Brian Copenhaver co-author of Renaissance Philosophy by Copenhaver <laughs> and Schmidt the textbook that I had read as a second year PhD student I like couldn't say a word uh, and I think everybody is shy in circumstances where we really care. And so there was a hilarious conversation where Patrick and I had the actual, yes, I want to buy your book. Excellent. I want you to buy my book conversation. We couldn't even quite make eye contact because <laughs> we both cared about it so much. And I think respected each other so much because he had been reading my history work and my blogging um, before that point that uh, that we were both nervous. <laughs> talking to each other. And there we were with Joe Walton also there, but Joe is much shorter than both of us. And so we were both like trying to hide behind Joe with Joe between us, <laughs> but Joe is too short and it was really hilarious. Um, <laughs> well, Oh, I was going to ask because, yeah, you mentioned like Joe Walton and Patrick Nielsen Hayden and stuff. I mean, it seems like you were very well connected for a first time novelist. I mean, in your book, you mentioned as well, like Yoon Ha Lee and Marianne Mahan Raj and Walter Isaacson. These are all people that you knew even before publishing your first book or? Uh, I didn't know you nor Marianne yet at that point, I think, though I didn't know Walter. Um, so it's a combination of things. One is that I had been 
trying to sell my books for years by that point. And so I had been doing the Googling and reading up on things that you do. Uh, and I also can, you know, attended conventions. I had been attending science fiction conventions for many years. My dad is a science fiction fan. My disreputable uncle is a super mega Whovian. So I had been to Doctor Who conventions when I was 10, I think. Um, and I'd been going to Balticon, the local Baltimore area con to where I grew up since I, regularly every year since I was 12, I think. Um, so when you go to conventions a lot, the wonderful thing about science fiction and fantasy fandom, unlike so many other literary genres, is that when you go to a conference, the author isn't off in the green room and only occasionally appearing for an event and then vanishing again. The authors are hanging out in the halls and you can talk with people and chat with people and you get to know people through the internet. Uh, so I got to know lots of authors from meeting them at conventions and from being myself a panelist before I was an author, because I would be talking about music or I would be talking about history or I would be talking about anime and manga and cosplay, which were all arenas that I worked in. Uh, so I got to know people and be known by people through that wonderful and often so supportive world uh, before that point. And, you know, Joe, I got to know through a dear friend of mine being friends with Joe on Live Journal and sharing there some of my writing about what it was like doing my Fulbright visit to Italy and, and you know, some of my tales of exploring terrible Italian bathrooms and using the Vatican mm -hmm. Library. And Joe had seen those. And then I had met Joe at a convention and uh, we got to know each other and we would chat. I had, I had met Patrick before at those conventions as well, though I'd always been too nervous to talk to him uh, very much because when you want something that much, you're always afraid you're going to mess up. Uh, so I think uh, that one thing that makes the world of navigating science fiction and fantasy publishing easier is if you do attend this rich fan world and get to know people, because then you can ask advice and find things out. And, you know, when I marketed my first and especially my second book, I had no idea that a 350,000 word science fiction fantasy novel was way too long and could never be published just because of length. Like, I didn't know that. Um, but I later learned about length relating to the cost of a volume and it being much more expensive to gamble on that for a first-time author. So it's uncommon for first-time authors to get to publish longer works unless you're publishing in a genre in which length is expected, specifically fat fantasy. But other than you know epic fantasy type things, you pretty much can't sell a first no novel that long. I was able to learn that by the time I was marketing to like the Lightning through reading about it, looking online, but also connecting with people through the fact that science fiction and fantasy is so about the mixing of authors and creators and scientists and tech people and readers all doing things together. So having wanted to be an author for so long and, you know, and, and, and sort of built it up in your mind so much has been, has the experience of being an author, has it been kind of how you imagined or what you expected, or has it been different from that in any way? Uh, it's been very much like what I imagined, but I think one of the things that aided with that is that I spoke with a lot of authors and knew what it would be like. And I think there are a variety of different reasons people want to be an author. And what I wanted to be an author for was for people to read these stories and respond to them and think about them. I write big ideas fiction. I write fiction, which is you know, speculating about different forms of government and different ways citizenship could work and different forms of ethics and 
different forms of metaphysics that could exist. And what I care about most is if people read it um, and if people think and respond to it. I, I, I sometimes refer to what I call the great conversation, meaning the conversation over time and over multiple generations of authors responding to each other. And, you know, authors I love, Gene Wolfe, Delaney, Voltaire, worked very hard to write the things because they wanted me to read them and reply. Mm. And I worked very hard to write the things because I want future versions, right? The next generation that will receive this and do even greater stuff than we have with it to read. Uh, and when that's what you want, then if people are reading it and finding it, that makes you happy. You know, the books have actually had much more commercial success than Tor or I actually anticipated. They're very difficult books. They're very hard books. Uh, we weren't sure whether they're really weird books. We weren't mm -hmm. sure whether very many people would like that. Uh, Patrick was confident that they're such worthwhile books doing such important things that the science fiction genre should be doing that he was happy to put the work into them, even if they weren't big sellers, but you know, Tor didn't print very many copies of the first book at first, which is why the first printing of the first edition is actually kind of uncommon because they didn't expect to sell as many as they did. Yeah, but for me, I wanted to be an author because I wanted people to respond to my ideas. There are other people who want to be an author because they want to make a living at it. There are some people who do it because they think it's a path to being rich. Uh, it's very, very rarely a path to being rich. Hmm. Uh, it's a path to having a small amount of income, which if you calculate it for the amount of time that you've spent on it is often pennies on the hour, uh, though can be more and accumulates over time as you have more books out and more backlist. Um, but, you know, there are some people for whom the idea of fame is why they want to do it. The idea of acclaim. Uh, there are other people for whom it's they really enjoy a particular type of adventure kind of story, or they really love their characters and they want to share their characters. And I think that depending on why a person wants to be an author, it is harder or easier to be happy being an author. Um, you know, it's hard and there are, there are difficult sides. I know that emotionally I care very, very, very deeply about the reader. I'm doing this for you. And so when readers are upset with anything that's in the books, it tends to hit me very hard. I, I feel terrible guilt. I lose nights of sleep thinking, oh, I could have done this better. How would I have changed this? Oh, I could have put in this one sentence and it would have made this thing clear. And I'm already having that with uh, perhaps the stars. <laughs> I've realized, oh, if there had been this one sentence that I inserted in this one place, then this thing couldn't be misconstrued in this way. <laughs> um, well, yeah. well Let's let's talk about some of the ideas in the book because I I do want to because I I just read to like the lightning and I just I thought it was fantastic I really really enjoyed it and it does have these great ideas in it and so like just to just to re really quickly summarize the premise basically um it's a couple hundred years in the future and most uh, like nation states have kind of dwindled away and in their place there are these things called hives which are these sort of voluntary associations sort of corporation kind of organizations and so there are Cor corporation gives a sense of for-profit uh and i think it's important to remember that only one of the seven is uh descended from a corporation well sort of two if you count gordian uh, but they are non-geographic political entities uh and you know geographic nations as the uh, element which defines your political identity, the place where you were born or the place where you live is what determines what laws you live under 
what government you owe allegiance to, what taxes you pay, what you know, political ideals you are expected to love patriotically or engage with in, in political participatory debate is no longer determined by geography because of a tech change, right? Because of the flying cars. Uh, that there's this global network of flying cars so fast they can get you from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours. So suddenly everywhere on Earth is commuting distance and you can live in the Bahamas and have a lunch meeting in Tokyo and eat at a restaurant in Paris and your spouse who also lives in the Bahamas can have a lunch meeting in Toronto and you know another one in Antarctica. And this is a perfectly reasonable travel day, especially with uh, self-driving vehicles that let you do work while you're in the car. So once that's been true for a couple of generations, people don't live in a place because they have political ties with it. They live in a place because there was a great house there that their parents really liked at the time that their parents were buying a house. And it no longer makes sense for geography to be the determiner of political identity. But people still have political identity. It's not a one world government. It hasn't become homogenous. It's become plural, but non-geographic. Uh, people live to come of age. When you come of age, you choose which of the different political groups you feel represents your ideals and you join that one uh, and you pay taxes to it and you follow its laws and your roommate or your spouse or your neighbors next door might have picked a different one. Marijuana might be legal for you, but not for your spouse or the other way around because you've chosen to be part of different political groups. And you know, local regulations are still done locally by city council and so on. But Fundamentally, it makes it into a buyer's market for citizenship. When you come of age, you decide which country is best or which one you most respect and you sign up for it. Boy, do those countries have to compete to make people respect them and want to sign up for them. Right now, our countries aren't accountable that way because they have citizens by default. Well, well, right. Let me, let me read. So these are like, I, I made a little list and there's a, there's a great paragraph in the book that lays these out, but the, the seven or at least six of them are described as nation, strat, parliament, non-hereditary, absolute monarchy, shareholder democracy, flexible constitution, democratic, aristocracy. Uh, there's sort of a, what I would call a, a corporation run by kind of super psychologists and one that's sort of like rule by suggestion box. Yep. Um, they all have so, radically differ different systems of government in terms of how much is it monarchy, how much is it democracy, how is the democracy set up? Uh, you know, democracy can elect a president or it can elect a parliament or it can elect a triumvirate or it can elect three different parliaments in balance with each other. One of them is the EU, which is still there. Uh, the EU is already fundamentally a non-geographic unit in that countries can join it and leave it. And they are, in fact, already discussing creating what I call in the book floating citizenship. It was fascinating to see them start discussing this since I wrote these books. Um, the idea that you could be a citizen of the EU itself broadly rather than of one of the particular countries of it. Uh, this has been discussed, especially in the context of Brexit, as to whether it might have been possible to create a system so that young British people who still wanted to be members of the EU could choose to be citizens of the EU directly, even if they weren't citizens of an EU country. Um, and the answer is sure, why not? And, you know, it's perfectly functional for there to be multiple legal systems with overlapping jurisdiction. All the way through the Middle Ages, there was church law and civil law and Roman law and different people within the same village were under different legal systems, even though they were living next door and it worked. 
these systems can work. I mean, it didn't work perfectly. The Middle Ages weren't perfect. Guess what? The modern era also isn't perfect. Hmm. And the institutions didn't work differently. The modern era isn't perfect. And it wasn't the fact that there were plural competing judicial systems that made the Middle Ages different. It's simply proof that that's perfectly possible. Right. So, so you have these six um, hives that I mentioned, and then there's the seventh one called the Utopians that seems sort of like science fiction fans, kind of like Elon Musk type. Uh, well, is that a- I mean, kind of and kind of not, uh, because they're extremely collectivist. So this is the group that is putting all of their efforts into terraforming Mars. Uh, and their capital is Luna City, which is a city on the moon, and they're working on terraforming Mars. And they focus on, you know, astra mortemque superare gradatim is their motto, which means to step by step gradually overcome death and the stars. Uh, and they work as a team to advance the projects of expanding human lifespan uh, conquering and eliminating things that cause death, such as diseases or making things safer so that there are fewer accidents, expanding the human lifespan and then expanding outward into space. And, you know, as we see them, there isn't as pithy a description of their political system because it's somewhat opaque to outsiders, but all of it is about collective teamwork in service of a project. And everything is shared and much of their money is made through patents from discoveries that they're making. But there is no celebrity whose fame is being magnified by doing this. It isn't, uh, it isn't profit seeking. Uh, it is about the project itself. And depending on whether you think that sounds like Elon Musk or not is an interesting question about what you think hmm. about Elon Musk. But I can give a fun and, and, uh, telling example. There's a fabulous recent board game called Terraforming Mars, in which you're terraforming Mars. And it's based on things like Musk, which is to say, the idea is that all the players are each a corporation. And you're terraforming Mars, and the UN is giving you funding to incentivize this, but you also make profits on your own. And you're competing with the other comp- co- corporations to terraform Mars best. And the winner at the end is the person who, the company that has contributed most to the terraforming of Mars. Uh, And so as you play, you're working on Mars projects, but you're also competing with each other so that you're, you know, trying to get the best resources and not let the other guy get the best resources. And the different companies might specialize in different things. And it's, it's to your incentive to, oh, here's a piece of really good space tech. If my rival gets this piece of really good space tech, they'll use it. Uh, to get a lot of points, I'll get this piece of space tech instead, even though I can't actually use it all that effectively to sort of shut it down so that they won't get ahead of me. And I've noticed from playing Terraforming Mars that if you play it regular and then it competitively, and then separately you play it collaboratively where you say, okay, we're going to ignore competing with each other for points and we're going to work together to try to make sure that all the resources end up in the hands of the company that will use them the most efficiently, you terraform Mars way better, way faster. Um, And so the board game is intended to be a celebration of this capitalist model of doing space, but actually also shows that just teaming up and everyone helping everyone get ahead makes everyone score more and achieve more terraforming of Mars. But so if you were living in this future society, I assume you would be a utopian or is that uh, is that not true? I mean, 
Myself, probably, yes. This is something that I feel about. And remember, they aren't just terraforming Mars. They are advancing a whole lot of agendas within humanity to make life better, longer, uh, and and advance purpose. Now, there's a discussion in there about, you know, some time, some the the many many contributions necessary to make a project the scale of terraforming mars happen are innumerable and you know great innovations in childcare are also essential to this by meaning kids grow up more energetic and eager and better able to contribute to other projects and adults are spending their time more richly and more efficiently instead of wasting time on less perfect you know childcare things uh, that every vocation from baking to Poetry contributes to the project in indirect ways by inspiring people, by giving people the rest and emotional strength that play is essential to games, you know, video games, emotional play, which is necessary to make you productive in the way that advances it. And, you know, a lot of that indeed reflects uh, me. But one of the whole issues with Terra Ignota is that there are things worthy of respect and that are excellent about all of these nations. And while a lot of people say, oh, I would definitely be in this one, but I love this about this other one. Uh, and indeed, within the world itself, the groups are in dialogue with each other and about the things that they share, the things that they respect about each other. Utopia loves planets and nurturing planets. So do the Mitsubishi, which is the nation that has the most environmental concerns and is most interested in nurturing and preserving Earth. They have overlap. And so, you know, one shouldn't ever read this book and come away thinking, I would definitely be in this group and none of the other groups are worth considering. It's always, I would definitely be in this group, but I would also share X value with this group and Y value with the other group uh, and respect this about these. And maybe this in the one I would join isn't quite perfect. and would be appropriate to reform because this isn't a utopia. The difference being it's a world that is changing and it has good institutions, but they're not perfect institutions and the characters themselves are involved in pushing a good thing to become better. I liked the, the utopians that they have. I mean, there are explicit references, I think, to like Alfred Bester, Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, that those are, you know, the science fiction authors are still remembered 400 years in the future. Yes. Uh, the utopians tend to, na to name themselves after inventors, explorers, literary figures, or sometimes uh, tech things or things from literature. Uh, at one point we hear uh, there's, a, there's a utopian named Curiosity, for example. Um, so sometimes they're named after things from fiction. Um, sometimes they're named after things from reality. Sometimes they're named after the creator. Sometimes they're named after the created. But as we hear more and more of their names, we see a mix of references to science fiction writers, fantasy writers, you know, literary figures from previous centuries, inventors, discoverers, uh, you know, ancient Greek figures, medieval Arab figures, all sorts of things. Actually, speaking of literary figures from uh, previous centuries, uh, I did not know this, that uh, you say there's a pretty good case to be made that Voltaire was actually the first science fiction author. It depends a lot on how you define science fiction, but Voltaire has a short story called Micromegas in which an alien from Saturn and an alien from a star near Sirius come to Earth, and they are enormous, and they explore the Earth and look at it and have trouble finding life forms because to them a whale is the size of a flea, 
And they eventually realize that that little tiny speck of wood on the ground is a ship and it's full of living things. And then they make contact. So it's a first contact story and they have conversations with the people. And that is a very fundamentally science fictional thing. It doesn't involve technology. So if you define science fiction as depending upon technology and being about you know, in the Frankenstein sense, is man's knowledge giving us access to powers beyond what we've had before? What does that mean? It isn't asking that, but aliens and first contact is a very core science fictional element Though you do get it a little bit in fantasy, but to a lesser degree. I have an essay in Uncanny Magazine that was published recently. Uh, what's the title? Uh, oh, Expanding Our Empathy Sphere Through Science Fiction and Fantasy, which has a little bit of a history of first contact narratives in both science fiction and fantasy. But uh, we name science fiction after the science, the tech, but the alien first contact element of it, both with aliens and later with AI fiction, you know, artificial intelligence first contact stories, are a very core science fictional concept. Uh, and so it is a very valid thing to argue as a work of science fiction. Is it the first real work of science fiction? Depends on how you define science fiction, because if you want there to be technology involved, then no, you have to wait for something like Frankenstein. Uh, is it that you only need to have space exploration? Well, then you're way late because Lucian of Samosatra was looking at this in ancient, <laughs> ancient Mediterranean world where he has a satire with people living on the moon. That's more than a millennium before Voltaire, but it isn't first contact. It's a political satire. It has fewer questions that are in line with science fiction questions about what would it be like to meet another species? How would we interact? What would we share? What would be different? So that's why I don't want to argue, yes, definitely everybody's histories of science fiction should start with Voltaire. But I do want to argue everybody's histories of science fiction will be richer by discussing whether or not Voltaire is the beginning of science fiction or whether it's earlier or whether it's later, because that gets at what the question of what science fiction is. I, I mean, is it the case that the Voltaire story with the aliens coming down, is that sort of less about angels and magic and, and more materialist than earlier examples of, you know, going characters going in, into space yeah. or things would have been? Yeah. Um, or, or less, less engaged in what we might call supernatural metaphysics. The aliens and the humans discuss theology. They discuss the question of whether the existence of God can be proved by science, uh, and what the nature of the universe might, might teach us about the purpose of the universe, what we can learn about the order of the cosmos and its potential maker by observing the motions of the stars and the scale of, of things that exist which are the kinds of questions that Darwin also asks. Uh, these, are the, these are a different category of question trying to learn about metaphysics through nature in a way that's a bit different from talking to an angel where you're trying to learn about metaphysics by divine revelation or pure logic, which is what's more common in uh, earlier stories where there's contact between a human being and an angel. Voltaire also writes about contact between human beings and angels, by the way. He's interested in both of these phenomena. Uh, but he's interested in contact between two different created species, neither of which has more access to God than the other. Uh, just what different conclusions have they come to? And he's particularly interested in scale. These aliens are enormous and live for hundreds or thousands of years. 
and to them human beings are as fleeting as a flea. Uh, and so what is similar and what is different about their philosophical conclusions and scientific conclusions when they have thousands of years to observe and consider compared to our hundred years to observe and consider. It was funny. I mean, that kind of segues into the next thing I wanted to ask, which is that I, so I'm reading this book and I get to page 239 and there's the line, the protagonist of every work of fiction is humanity and the antagonist is God. Mm. And I wrote down Gene Wolfe at the Mm. top of the page. (laughs) And then it was kind of interesting because then I went and listened to your, I mean, I sort of suspected that there was a Book of the New Sun influence on on this, but it was interesting to have that confirmed. Then when I went, as I said, I listened to your interview that was on the rereading Wolf mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. I mean, Wolf was an influence in a lot of ways, especially in the density of my world building, my interest in having historical layers and remnants of earlier eras still present in the new era. And also the, how much you can do with a complicated narrator. Uh, and having multiple separate overlapping onion layers of reliability and unreliability as you get to know your narrator more and more. Those are all very much Gene Wolfe. Uh, and indeed, you know, in Gene Wolfe, there is a theology that the characters are exploring, but the same is true of Candide, where, you know, the protagonist is definitely man and the antagonist, if there is one, is definitely God or fate, etc. You know, indeed, I have I have included that thesis in the book, not because I'm saying that it's true, but because I want the reader to be thinking about it as the rest of the series advances. Because, of course, as soon as the book contains a character who makes that claim, you're instantly wondering, ah, is that claim going to hold true for this book? Is the protagonist going to be man? Is the antagonist going to be God? And I want you to have that question in your mind as you proceed and as I uh, un- unroll my characters' engagement with their understandings of metaphysics. So was it a kind of thing where you're, you're, you're kind of like, before you had started writing the book, you're like, someone should do something in the vein of Book of the New Sun, maybe I'll take a crack at it? Or was it a kind of thing where you were like putting the ideas together and you were partway into working out the story and you're like, oh, this should, this is a, a Gene Wolfe, Book of the New Sun kind of thing that I'm... It I'm was more... It was more that I learned by observation. I read Gene Wolfe. I read it repeatedly. I read it richly and I observed the great things in it that I loved. And then I used many of those elements when I was constructing my world build and when I was developing my narrator. The conscious someone should do a book like this thought that spawned it wasn't Gene Wolfe. It was Diderot's Jacques Le Fataliste. Uh, Diderot's strange 18th century philosophical novel about uh, the meanderings of a of a man who's a valet in the company with his master, which has this exquisitely warm and intimate prose style, in which the Diderot directly addresses the reader with great intimacy and and vulnerability and you know saying do you know i think this might be true i realize i don't actually have good evidence for it but i instinctively feel it and i kind of have trouble not and and sometimes i feel like this is true and sometimes i don't uh where he shows weakness and shares the kinds of private tender things that you only share with an intimate friend except he's doing it with you the reader um reading that book feels like being reading a time capsule where you're meeting Diderot and being his friend in a way that's very different from any other book that I'd ever read. And you come out of the end of it feeling like Diderot has shared his raw, incomplete, uncertain, deeply, deeply human 
thoughts and feelings with you and asked for your thoughts and your opinions in return in a way that's just exquisite. Um, so there was that. And then there was Voltaire, both Candide and Micromegas and Zadig, all of which are, you know, in Micromegas, he's asking questions kind of like the questions of science fiction. But when his aliens get together, you know, it's a first contact story. Aliens, they meet each other. What do they talk about? They talk about whether Descartes or Thomas Aquinas is correct about the nature <laughs> of the soul and whether you can prove the existence of providence from observation of nature. And that isn't what our aliens and us talk about. They are, you know, aliens in our first contact stories are much more likely to discuss whatever the big concerns are of that decade. Uh, you know, Cold War era first contact stories are sure concerned with war and peace and uh, mutually assured destruction and annihilation and genocide, uh, aliens of the, the digital tech revolution era in you know the cyberpunk era of science fiction also has first contact stories, but they're very much more concerned with how much is the human or how much is the biological life form separate from its technology? Does technology make us less what we are? Are there aliens that have got different relationships with technology and prostheses and cyborgness than we have? Those aren't the questions Voltaire asked. Voltaire asked of his aliens the questions that he thought in his moment were big universal questions. And I thought, what if Voltaire had the literary tools of modern science fiction? Because Voltaire doesn't have this enormous, rich, multi-decade accumulation of science fictional concepts. He doesn't have flying cars. He doesn't even have cars. Uh, he doesn't have genetics. He doesn't have cloning. He doesn't have a rich history of first contact. He doesn't have space stations and rocket ships and terraforming. He doesn't have the question of whether humans can remake planets in their image or whether we should move ecosystems with us into space or not. I wanted to write a story that Voltaire might have written if Voltaire had been able to read the last 70 years worth of science fiction and have all of those tools at his disposal. Right. I have read um, Candide and I, I love it. That's a, a, a book I read in high school that has always really stuck with me. I mean, Diderot, I am not particularly familiar with. So it was a real education for me reading to like the lightning. I mean, not, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, I, I kind of became acquainted with through reading this book that I, uh, you know, I'm curious to go research more. But the thing about Diderot that really struck me, so there's a line in the book where um, the narrator, Mycroft, he says, can you imagine a nobler act reader sacrificing his own chance to add his voice to humanity's great conversation to safeguard the conversation itself? This is, I guess, Diderot um, was putting together this encyclopedia he, yeah. and this suppressed is, his, his own controversial views in exactly. order to advance the encyclopedia project. Right. The Diderot self-censored, not publishing his own innovative atheistic uh, thought because he was the editor of this great project, the purpose of which was to preserve and disseminate all knowledge to all people and empower everyone in the knowledge is power sense. And if he had the reputation for being an atheist, then the project would have been much more likely to be banned and shut down. So he sacrificed being able to publish his own work in order to protect everybody else's. It was just so interesting to me, though, that, you know, that, um, that Diderot sacrificed his ability to contribute to the great conversation. And then the, there was such a resonance to me with that, with what you were saying in the the afterward about how you had mm -hmm. this such a desire to contribute to the great conversation. And so I can really see how you would, um, you know, latch on to or identify with, with Diderot in that way. Yeah. 
and respect it enormously because he protects that project so much, right? He's encapsulating and protecting everybody else's achievements. One of the goals of the Encyclopedia Project was for this information to be so widespread that it can never be forgotten, so that there could never be a backsliding of technology. But yes, yeah, so I, I was also just curious to ask if there were, in addition to Book of the New Sun, if there were any particular works of science fiction that there were influences on this. I mean, kind of the things that I don't know, these are just some of my favorites, so they, they come up probably with everything that I read. But um, toward the end, the, the stuff that you've, you start finding out about the protagonist and, and his interactions with other characters was reminding me a little bit about, uh, reminds me a little bit of Use of Weapons by Ian M. Banks. Mm. And then when you have the um, these these characters who are all conspirators meeting up to, to try to figure out if any of them are behind the conspiracy or not, mm-hmm. this kind of reminds me of um, Sign of the Unicorn, the third Amber Rogers oh. novel. Yeah, that one I hadn't read. And Banks I was familiar with when I designed that part of the story from summaries, but not reading it. You know, another major uh, source there is I, Claudius, Robert Graves' I, Claudius, which is a historical about ancient Rome, but about the intimate personal world of the elite political leaders who are shaping everything through this empire. And, you know, the some elements of the book are very much modeled on I, Claudius. Others are very much modeled on uh, some elements of Delaney and Delaney's fascinating and deeply philosophical science fictional worlds. I read a lot of Delaney uh, as my early jump into science fiction. And then some of it is responding to Japanese science fiction in translation. Um, it's something that people who read a lot of Anglophone SF but don't engage very much outside the Anglosphere rarely recognize. Uh, but Japan has a long tradition of science fiction, a lot of it produced in response to English language works being translated into Japanese. And they've done a lot of development with artificial intelligence and uh, robots, and also with warfare and the ethics of warfare and survival and peace. You know, Japan is, for example, very interested in the relationship between China and Tibet. And so there's a quite a bit of Japanese science fiction engaging with the question of, uh, can a nation absolutely dedicated to peace that won't use any military force actually function politically in a rivalry with others that are willing to use force? So there's a lot of very interesting science fiction coming from Japan that you can get in translation, sometimes in prose, but often in animated or comic book manga form, just because that's where a lot of Japanese SF is produced. Uh, so works like Revolutionary Girl Utena, which engages with the 18th century as a lens to look at gender and revolution and the relationship between political revolution and uh, gendered revolution. Also Rosa Versailles, which it's modeled on. Uh, and then looking at works like Gundam, uh, or works like Tezuka's Astro Boy and Phoenix, which look at ethics and first contact and robot intelligences, uh, is also in there, but people don't recognize it quite as often uh, because a lot of people who read this kind of book don't also consume that kind of thing. But there's yeah, a whole no. world of science fiction over there too. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not as familiar with with manga and anime as I am with uh, you know sort of science fiction novels. Um, so I, I definitely mm-hmm. you know I'll, I'll I'll be curious to go back and listen to yeah. some of those. Well, and only a uh, tiny slice of anime and manga is science fiction, uh, and of the anime and manga that are science fiction, only a tiny slice of it is innovative and and doing something <laughs> ambitious as opposed to let's just have some robots having another fight. 
but you know, in the same way that in science fiction novels, plenty of them are just fun and others are doing serious and innovative things. Uh, and so if you find the serious and innovative works like Pluto, which is an amazing AI ethics first contact piece, Pluto by Naoki Urasawa based on Tezuka's uh, Astro Boy. Uh, one of the best works about AI and identity and more that I've, I've ever read. Um, <sighs> such good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to, it's interesting you mention um, iClaudius because I'm pretty sure that Gene Wolfe modeled Book of the New Sun on iClaudius. At least that's, I haven't read iClaudius, but that's kind of what I have. That's my understanding. Mm. Uh, well, certainly, iClaudius is a very interesting and influential way of looking at imperial power and the world around imperial power and what it means. Uh, and there are moments in it, uh, you know, the, the easiest to summarize is that one of the minor, minor issues that it looks at is Augustus being uncomfortable about being deified, right? There was this practice of, of you know, Julius Caesar had been made a god and people wanted to make Augustus a god and uh, especially to have temples built to him in faraway places. And Augustus resisted it for a long time. And in Robert Graves' depiction of this, you know, Livia, Augustus's wife, schemes to have the Senate make him a god anyway, even though he didn't want to. And there's this amazing scene where he comes to her and says, you know, they've made me a god in Palmyra. Um, there's going to be a a temple to be and a little statue and people will bring offerings to me and ask me to bring rain or cure their father's gout. Tell me, <laughs> Livia, if I'm a god, even in Palmyra, how do I cure gout? <laughs> and he just, you know, the, 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 what does religion even mean anymore if we are having me do this when I'm powerless and I want to be powerful. I'm the emperor of Rome. I want to be able to fix everything. I can't. Isn't this dishonest? Is a very powerful moment and engagement. And it engages even more deeply with Caligula, who, you know, declares himself to be a god and appears to believe it. Um, and so I do think that Gene Wolfe is engaged in that, in the, what is the limit of the power of the monarch? Uh, what is the limit of the power of empire? Can it be on a scale of metaphysics and religiosity? Can there really be a throne so powerful that it's entangled with saving the earth from the heat death of the universe? Uh, is that, is that possible? Uh, you know, that is in many ways the deep extension of the, if I'm a god in Palmyra, how do I cure gout? You know, if I'm the emperor of everything, but the problem is that the sun is going cold. Is that is there a model of lordship or a level of technology at which that quasi-divine level of power is possible or sane? And if so, does it or doesn't it reflect the universe accurately? So very, very interesting questions and that he definitely engages with and that I engage with. Well, yeah, so this, this might be a, a bit of a tricky question, but I did want to ask you this after reading the book. So my question is, is it cruel to let angelic intelligences mix with human <laughs> intelligences long enough for each to learn how the other categories consciousnesses experience a different kind of independence from their God? That sure sounds like a question that's answered if you read three more books. <laughs> um, and more specifically, you're quoting that as a, as a question that one of the very strange characters in book one uh, asks. And my best answer to that is book one and book two were written as one book and were then cut in half. And book one is all set up and book two is all payoff. 
Okay, well, I am definitely, I definitely really want to read book two. So, uh, yeah, you have definitely uh, advertised. That's a good advertisement for, <laughs> for book two. Yeah, it was so hard trying to create something for the end of book one that would give some degree of satisfaction. I had very little time to make the revisions and wanted to give the readers something that wasn't just in Mediares. And it ended up with an interesting kind of structure where, you know, as you've noticed, lots is going on. There is a mystery. There is a whodunit. But the whodunit is very in the background. It sort of surfaces occasionally like a sea turtle coming up to take a breath. And they're like, oh, right, the whodunit is here in this chapter. And then it's gone for like four chapters, right? <laughs> um, but there is this, this faint whodunit thread in book one. And at the very end of book one, it isn't that you find out whodunit, as you know. Um, but at the very end, the very, 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 very end of book one, you finally fully understand what it is that has been done. Because the whole rest of the time, you're like, okay, this happened. Somebody did this. Why? What does this even mean? What are the, huh? And at the <laughs> very end, you finally realize, oh, this is what's been caused to occur. The it that has been done is this far larger disruption than we anticipated. Okay, we finally understand what the it is in the who done it. Now, next volume can be the who and the why. Uh, but it's a mystery where you only find out on the last page of the book what it is that someone has done. Well, I mean, I I've, I found the book really really riveting. You know, even even if it's all set up, I mean, I found it. Uh, you know, just, just so fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, I am definitely looking forward to reading the rest of the series. And I mean, if we are, you know, we're pretty much out of time, but do you want to just say anything since, you know, you just published the fourth book? Is there anything you want, else you want to say without getting into spoilers that will just sort of entice listeners to <laughs> to continue on with the series or to read the whole thing? Um, every volume is better than the previous one would be my best answer. Uh, hmm. And so if you liked book one, book two will give you lots of resolution. If you like book two, book three, the intensity will ramp up. If you like book three, you know, even people who love book three and love the whole series, especially people who loved it so much that they've reread it. A lot of people have been messaging me saying, I've decided I'm going to reread books one through three before reading book four, which I highly recommend if you have a gap. But now you don't have to have a gap because it's out. Uh, but that all of them were then blown away by the intensity of book four. Um, and another way to put it is, you know, write, writing is a slow apprenticeship. We do get better. There are only two chapters in book four, which were not harder to write than the hardest chapter of the previous three mm -hmm. books. Uh, I, I got better as a writer. I took on uh, more intense and more challenging things, and it was worth it. <laughs> it was all worth it. Yeah, well, that's that's really exciting, and yeah, I mean, I, I this this book made me want to read the next book more than uh, more than almost anything I, anything I can think of uh, recently. Yeah, well, book one is all about introducing you to this amazing world, right, and this deeply built future, which is neither a utopia nor a dystopia. It has dystopian things about it. It has lots of censorship and severe religious restrictions and. And things that should make us, you know, tip up and say, wait, that sounds bad. But it also has lots of wonderful things in this wonderful political system with 
with great political self-determination and 150 year lifespan and 300 years of world peace that make us say, wow, this is a great world, but it also has some terrible things about it. It's really complicated. It has lots of moving parts, has lots of things that are respectable. It has a few things that are confusing and left over from the past. And a lot of it is about engaging with that complicated world because that's what our present would feel like to Voltaire, right? That's what our world right now would feel like to the people in the past who were trying to make their world better. Cause it, you know, it is better. The lifespan is longer. We've eradicated smallpox. We can fly around the world in merely 12 hours. And it's also not better because now climate change crisis is a thing and, and we can have bigger, terrible wars and, and some problems that they wrestled with are gone. And, you know, equal rights for women is, is enormously progressed, but it's definitely not complete. And, you know, Voltaire was campaigning against anti-vaxxers and, uh, and against religious intolerance and religious war. And he'd be here and be like, well, got to republish the same essay again, huh? <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, he would look at our magnificent cities and towers of glass and steel and, and progress on diseases and the fact that it's now the case that some cancers can be recovered from or even anticipated and prevented. And he would, he would weep with joy seeing our world, but he would also immediately take out his pen to write about the ways that it isn't good enough yet. And this future is like that. It's full of amazing things that we look at and we desperately want. And also things where we should take out our pen and start writing that pamphlet about why censorship is not okay and why this isn't good enough yet. Uh, and so that's the meatiness of book one is engaging in a world that's like that for your future, the way our present would be for Voltaire's uh, if he saw it. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good note to end on. So why don't we wrap things up there? Perfect. So we've been speaking with Ada Palmer about her book, Too Like the Lightning. So Ada, thank you so much for joining us. This was a treat. I love these kinds of conversations. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ada Palmer for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.